Blog Talk Radio. Hey, welcome to Snake Oil Radio here on Blog Talk Radio. I uh, hope everyone is having a good day. Uh, I, today is my interview show. This is your host, Jim Ventura. And I've got a uh, very interesting guest to talk to today. Um, I want to mention before we, we, we go on air and continue with the show that if anyone's caught in the last couple of shows that I've done, I've had a few technical issues that have come up. So I think those are resolved, fortunately. But uh, if not, and you're in the show, uh, if you're, you're calling in or you're just listening or in the chat room and you catch a disconnect, uh, where I shut down, uh, that's that, that technical issue, and I'll call back in, so just kind of stay with us in that sense, and we'll kind of go from there. I, I, I'm thinking it's, it's solved. Uh, I'm very optimistic <laughs> that the problem is solved, but I just want to kind of warn everyone in case we still have some of these issues that we had before. Anyway, so that said, uh, this is, again, I do, uh, this is my uh, twice-monthly show, and uh, today is my interview show, and I'm lucky to have uh, guest Steve Riles here. Hi, Steve. How are you today? Good morning, Jim. I'm doing well. Good. And did I pronounce your name correctly? Uh, you know, technically, it's Riles. Riles. Okay, gotcha. All right. I always like to ask that. Uh, uh, good. So, again, good to have you here. Um, so, uh, I'm going to kind of let I'm going to let Steve handle this in that sense and give you an opportunity to talk. A little bit about uh, about you know kind of what you do. So I'm letting you take the floor for a few minutes. Okay. Well, what I do now is uh, I'm a writer and editor and graphic designer, uh, bookmaker and and so on. And I'm also a counselor, um, a spiritual counselor and a feelings coach, and uh, particularly work with men on uh, helping them become more comfortable with and familiar with their emotions. I do a lot of uh, teaching about uh, emotional literacy, I'll call it, (laughs) Uh, giving people an opportunity to uh, learn that while we have emotions, we are not our emotions and we don't have to be either controlled by them or terrified of them. I come out of a a background of uh, lots of recreational drug use when I was younger and lots of alcohol abuse and I've been sober for about eight and a half years, and uh, the title of my book, Drunk with Wonder, Awakening to the God Within, is a uh, the result of a lot of research I've done. I have a hundred book bibliography in the back, for example, and it's uh, all about emotional literacy and tying that in with spiritual principles of, uh, of uh, us all being one, of a unifying uh benign, benevolent, uh, loving force in the universe, and uh, uh, how the latest findings in quantum physics and cosmology and astronomy and so on are all supporting these ideas. So that's kind of in a nutshell what I'm up to. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that... uh you know, uh, Steve is is going to talk about. I'm hoping today is a subject I have really wanted to uh, to approach uh, for for quite some time, and it and it is the subject of addiction. Oh uh, uh, yeah, I think that it is somewhat of a you know I, I don't necessarily a taboo subject because we we certainly talk about it in this society, but I think that um, you know the the element of addiction itself is often um, uh, maybe misconstrued in that sense because there are so many different things people can be addicted to in that sense. And I think it is, it's not uncommon for human beings to have different elements of addiction. Um, you know, I think that the, the most, you know, common things people, uh, I won't say well, it's common the right word, but the most, uh, you know, familiar things, of course, are drugs or alcohol. But I think addiction um, stretches far even beyond that. In terms of uh, you know influences that are uh, blocking to you know to harmony and, and experience, and I, I think obviously it's very interesting this uh, subject that you're you're broaching and talking about uh, with uh, really coming up obviously with with a way to to solve this these problems in that sense because. I am. Um, I, I've had friends who have have gone through and clients who have gone through AA, and you 
12-step programs and things of mm-hmm. that nature. And I definitely think they are of value, but I also think there are other approaches that one can take toward um, healing and dealing with addiction issues. I quite agree, Jim. I, uh, I let go of my alcohol use without going through a 12-step program, for example. So I'm, I am very familiar with how that can be done. I, I have some, you know, some kinds, of, some uh, issues, some questions with some of, some of what they do, and, and that's not to, <clears throat> in any way, uh, denigrate their great work and their great success and how many lives they've turned around, but. I'll just uh, say something quickly about addiction from my perspective. Um, We become addicted to activities or substances or people uh, or ideas uh, because we've learned at a very early age to find ways to distract ourselves from feelings or emotions that we find threatening or scary. And you're absolutely right about how addictions go way beyond drugs and alcohol. I think it's it's a probably closer, more you know, more clo- it's closer to accurate to to talk about what someone is addicted to rather than whether. I think, for example, everyone I've ever personally met and talked with is addicted to adrenaline in one form or another. Right. And when I talk about addiction, I talk about a substance that we find so compelling that we wind up using it all the time. And that we, and more precisely, we use it to help distract ourselves, again, from uh, feelings or emotions that we find threatening or scary. And we're all masters at it, actually. And I'm not even here to say that's necessarily wrong. I mean... Um, a good adrenaline rush is a pretty intense, you know, pie. Right. It's really pretty intense. I guess you want to know why people jump out of airplanes or drive cars fast or, uh, you know, the, the examples are endless. Right. Uh, then that that's it. I When I talk about, uh, from the perspective of my book, Drunk with Wonder, I, I deliberately chose a provocative title and a, a strong allusion to uh, Rumi and Hafez, these uh, mystical Persian Sufi poets from seven, eight hundred years ago, who got all into talking about being intoxicated with God in an incredibly sensual, intense, physical, as well as spiritual and emotional uh, experience. And not dry at all. It's not intellectual. It's a very... Uh, profoundly embodied experience of being one with God. And so I I think that in our culture, we've largely been separated from that experience and taught that, again, that's a threatening or scary experience, and we've got to be, quote, in control, unquote, and um, have our act together and uh, don't ever don't any don't ever let anybody see you sweat and uh, so on and so forth. All of these kinds of platitudes and um, ideas that are thrown around in our culture. And how I found to begin to get some clarity about this and feeling like as though I had some freedom was to begin to realize that. I am not my thoughts and my stories and my emotions, that I have them, but there is an ever-present awareness deep inside that is not any of these outward manifestations. And to go back to addiction, I think that we really are terrified of our magnificence. You know, as I I quote Marianne Williamson uh, in my book, It's something to the effect that it is not our darkness, it is our light that most frightens us. Right. And so uh, this bubbling up of effervescent joy, of a real yummy uh, high of of good feelings, of benevolence, of of happiness, I think that scares us more than anything else. I I, I can speak from my own experience that... uh, I was well along on my path, my spiritual path, and I would go to week-long retreats 
and be you know absolutely sober, not using at all during that entire week. And then I would find myself in a position where I'd come home and I couldn't wait to get drunk. Right. And I started looking at that. I go, what is up with that? I just had the most awesome week. You would think that the last thing I would want to do would be to get blotto. Right. But I I ran to the bottle, you know, for years and and so anyhow, that's how I came to the conclusion that what I was really after and what I think a lot of people are really after is a deep connection with source, with spirit, with God, however you want to language that, uh, hugely loving presence, and that we think or we're taught that it's the drugs or the alcohol that is the conduit or the avenue. And the, you know, the dirty little secret is that it's actually, those are actually conduits away from being right. connected with our source. Absolutely. I like how you put that, and I, I really, you know, I especially, you know, I like how you, 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 you referenced it in the sense of saying it's a, addiction is a distraction from feeling. Because, because and that, that, that goes in a dual way, because you're, you know, you can be, you want to distract from your pain, but I think you, I really I love the way that you put that, we also distract ourselves even in some ways when we feel too joyful. Um that can be a real issue in that sense, especially if you were taught somehow that that's wrong. Yeah, it's an, it's a, it can be really intense. You know, ecstasy can be a very intense experience. It can be mind-blowing, uh, ego-blowing. It's, it, if you really, really let ourselves go into joy, uh, think of people who are dancing, you know, really intensely, really focused on uh, moving their bodies and getting into the rhythm and losing their minds you know what we're doing when we talk about losing our minds we're losing our stories of, of fear and limitation and lack and we're just getting into the groove of being one with all and you know there's a part of us uh, some call it the ego that is basically a collection of stories uh, that we've misinterpreted or misunderstood as who we really are and that part of us if we stop thinking about of these stories, it starts getting really scared because it thinks it's not going to be anymore. Right. And there is a certain level of, you know, what I had to come to when I let go of my drinking, Jim, one of the biggest issues for me was letting go of my story that I was this party guy. Right. You know, if, I, if I let go of my drinking and being a party guy, who am I? Mm-hmm. And that was a, a rather existential question that uh, you know took some time to resolve. And I, the way I resolved it is to realize that I'm whoever I say I am. I'm whoever I choose to be in the moment. Right. A child of God, a, a, a man who loves big and uh, cares deeply. And then however that manifests in the moment is however it shows up. And when we're not attached to how it shows up, we have a lot less suffering. Absolutely. Um, you know, that's inter- again, I, I'm liking the way that you're putting this because, I mean, one of the things that I find um, difficult about a 12-step program, again, and I'm, I'm, in no way am I, I, I putting down, I'm putting that down because I think it's, it's, it can be very valuable to people, is like, for instance, you know, I, I've talked to people who are um, in AA or various other things, and they haven't had a drink in 20 years, and they'll still say that they're an alcoholic. Right. And, like, uh, to me, I hate that. I hate hearing that. That doesn't make any sense to me. You're not an alcoholic anymore. I mean, I was a, you know, I was a, uh, you know, I was a nerd in, in high school, and at, at 44, I still don't label myself a nerd. You know what I mean? Like, to me... You're not that anymore in that sense. That that's something that that becomes still you know part of that story. And even uh, the thing I think that that is always difficult for me in that sense is to make something you were addicted to so demonic that you can't even be around it. Yeah, I, 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 it. yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, you're you're right on as far as I'm concerned. Uh, when to me, when we say something like alcohol has power over me. Right. Or I am I am I am powerless, you know. 
in the face of alcohol, however that's put. Uh, what we're doing, from my perspective, and it sounds like from yours as well, is we're giving up our power. Right. We're giving up our sovereignty, our freedom, and 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 basically claiming victimhood. And I do not think that is personally. I do not think that's healthy. I do not think that is a way to uh, grow into our potential. I think we 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 radically limit ourselves. And I, you know, it's interesting. After eight years, I'll you know go out to dinner and somebody will say, "Yeah, I'd love a glass of wine." Oh, that's right, you don't drink. Do you mind if I have a glass of wine? And my my reaction is, you know what? You're having a glass of wine doesn't make me want to. Right. You know, you're not in charge. Your choices are not in charge of my choices. Right. And and that's where I want to go with this. I I fully believe in the possibility of healing, mm-hmm. of being healed, of having healed. And when we say I'm in recovery and I will be in recovery for the rest of my life, that feels like this big blanket or this big barrier or boundary beyond which you're not going to let yourself grow. And I think that we can, and I've run across many people who consider themselves to be healed from their addiction to alcohol, for example, and they've done it in the same basic way that I understand that I've done it uh, and, and other people do it, which is they've actually been able to confront the stories that were running them that they that engendered so much fear and panic and um, anxiety and realized that those stories were not who they really were and they didn't have to keep choosing to tell themselves those stories. <clears throat> and when they freed themselves up from those old stories, that itch, that urge to use to distract themselves from those stories, from the pain of those stories, just right. started to drop away. That's how I was able to to finally stop drinking was, I mean, I had, I had help from family and friends. My wife was <clears throat> a huge part of it, uh, a loving part of it. But in a very, very core way, there was a part in me that just, you know, kind of mentally, if you can imagine, because kind of mentally went, you know what? I'm done. Right. I'm just done. I I don't need to do this anymore. I'm hurting myself. I'm hurting other people. I'm spending a lot of money. I'm, you know, on and on and on. Uh, But the the core bottom line is that I didn't need to keep this self-destructive pattern going because I didn't have these huge this huge weight of these unfelt emotions always hanging over me. Does that make sense? Yeah, oh, absolutely. You, you know, and I, I think um, I, I like, again, I like your approach to this because, you know, I think that any type of addiction obviously is a mask of something also, uh-huh. you know, uh, to a large extent. Like the only, I, I've had I've had two addictions in my life that I can like and legitimately say I had addictions to. At one point some years ago, I had a sexual addiction for a while, um, and then at another point some years back, I can honestly say I had um, a gambling addiction. Uh huh. And in both cases, um, resolution of those things, um, which did come, came more from really, really identifying also why I was doing it becoming clear about what, what the pull was, um, what, what the fascination was. So like with a gambling addiction, um, that was actually pretty easy for me to figure out. I had gone into a lot of debt from a number of things, and the gambling addiction had, to me had, had kind of two basic core responses to it. One, uh, well, uh, responses, basis to it. One was, the, the, the main thing was, I kept hoping I would win a big jackpot to get me out of debt. Sure. So in the reality is, of course, that just got me further into debt. <laughs> I mean, it didn't, it didn't ever get me out of debt. It just made it really progressively worse in that sense. And the other part was, of course, the addiction to the, the adrenaline of it. Right. The experience of the, you know, the, the up and down, the high and the low element of that, of that aspect. And I, I think that 
when I really, really became conscious of what I was doing and why I was doing it, um, I had to sort of redirect my energy. And what's very funny is I actually, ne- I, I, I still go to Las Vegas every maybe other month for a few days and I will play, but it's very different once the addiction element left. It just became more of um, very low-stakes gaming just for the sake of play, uh-huh. very simply. And it's and I've never been pulled back into the addiction element again since I kind of got that that shift that awareness that came through. Um, there was a sense of you know you bring up a very very valid point there too about being terrified of our magnificence. The distraction of gambling at the time also had to do with if I won money I wouldn't have to really do the thing I was afraid of doing, which was to be very successful and do well in life and use the talents and skills and abilities that were natural to me. Mm-hmm. So it, was in, uh, it also was working as an avoidance. <laughs> so uh, a, a lot of things came together to help move that through. But what, what was funny about that is I think it, I knew other people that had dealt with that addiction and was sort of adamant about saying that without going to Gambles Anonymous, it was impossible to cure that. And I, from experience, I have to disagree. I I would I would recommend you know to me I, I guess I, I put that into the same category as sort of saying um, the only way you can have a spiritual connection is by going to church. Right. You know John Bradshaw. You're probably familiar with his writing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I I was first exposed to the idea of a dry drunk uh, through his work. Right. <clears throat> well, gosh, it's been over twenty twenty five years ago. <clears throat> And uh, he that that he was able to work through understanding that even though he wasn't drinking, <clears throat> he was still abusive emotionally. Right. He still had all the anger issues and all of the, you know, these this giant. If you think of it as a gunny sack full of unfelt emotions, and that until he found healthy and responsible ways to go through that sack and deal with that energy he was going to keep acting like a drunk or acting like a jerk even though he wasn't physically drinking. Right, right. And so that's, you know, I I say, and I think a lot of people at this point say that addictions are symptoms. They're not cause. And so to, you know, to throw someone into rehab <clears throat> and have them not drink for 30 days, for example, and then, you know, and then they're out of rehab, and they haven't ever addressed the core issues that are going on, Right. well, of course, there's going to be a high recidivism rate. Of course there is, because right. the core pain, the core fear, uh, however you want to language it, has not been dealt with or acknowledged, and they still don't have any tools. You know, I'm I'm really happy to tell your listeners that there are actually really good tools you can use to feel your feelings in healthy and responsible ways, which means that you're safe, that people around you are safe, and that you're actually moving this emotion. You know, And, and part of what I uh, teach in my Drunk With Wonder book is about the triune brain, about the origin of our emotions, about how there aren't any bad or wrong emotions. There can just be more appropriate and less appropriate ways of expressing them. Right. And that when we stop being afraid of our emotions, you know, what is one of the most common things we get told when we're a little kid? You know, we're upset about something, and, you know, a parent comes along and says, well, you shouldn't feel that way. Well, when we're a little kid, we don't have any abstract reasoning yet. I mean, we are our bodies. We are our feelings. So when somebody says you shouldn't feel that way, you shouldn't be angry. You know, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Right. You know, all of that stuff is telling us that there's something wrong with us at our core. You know, get, think about that. I mean, we right. just we get told that who we are is not appropriate, is not okay. And if we get physically beaten or abused, uh, and, and as well as emotionally, uh, as I was growing up, I get, get to a point where you, you just feel like there's something broken inside and that it's not repairable and that kind of pain is why we have addictive behavior is because we're we don't want to feel that pain well who would want to feel that pain of course that's that's really something 
that I think is is helpful for people to understand. Well, of course, uh, you know, I, that's actually kind of a reasonable reaction uh, when we talk about you know survival of the fittest and you know surviving long enough to reproduce and all that kind of stuff. That's a pretty uh, appropriate strategy when we don't have any better tools, right? Because it, it gets us through the day. And um, when I teach this stuff uh, in classes or one-on-one, I'm I'm just struck by how many times people feel this palpable sense of relief. Oh, there's not something inherently wrong with me after all. Oh, I can deal with this. Oh, I can do something about this. And it, and it's the absolute truth. It's the absolute truth that the keys to our freedom are inside of each one of us. Right. They're, they don't live outside. They live inside. And and it comes to, uh, you know, one of my favorite spiritual figures is Lady Kuan Yin. She's the goddess of mercy and compassion mm-hmm. and forgiveness in the Buddhist pantheon. And uh, I don't know anybody who can bring forth too much mercy, compassion, and forgiveness. And it starts right here at home where we start to go, oh, oh, the reason I've always been so scared of my feelings is da-da-da-da-da. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, I don't have to do that anymore. You know, that kind of dawning of understanding and appreciation for how we got to where we are today. Right. And then we can, and then when we once we understand, we also understand that we can make other choices. We don't have to keep telling ourselves those same tired, fear-based stories anymore. And you know, some of the latest research on the brain. Uh, includes this idea of brain plasticity. Are you familiar with that, Jim? Um, a, a little. So, it, well, it's just what it means is that the brain is far more able to generate new neuronal pathways than we ever thought possible, even ten or fifteen years ago. Right. And what that means is that, you know, instead of just saying, "Oh, that's just the way I am," and that having that kind of resignation. We can say, well, it takes work, it takes effort, uh, it's you know not free in that sense. The good news is that if you make a diligent and protracted effort to think new thoughts, to have new ideas, to tell yourself new stories, the brain will actually accommodate you, right, and will actually change. I have one of my own brothers was. Uh, diagnosed with a brain tumor and had the whole surgery and radiation thing. And when he got out of that, you know, a little part of his brain was gone and he was struggling to speak coherent sentences or get up and walk around. And 10 years later, you know, through rehab and and working hard, he's uh, driving a car again and fully functional and carry on a great conversation. And you'd never know anything had happened to him. Right. And he did that literally by being willing to go through the process of rewiring his brain. So the you know the the, the takeaway I'm, I want people to have here, Jim, is that we are not you know chained to our past. We're not chained to our old stories. There is great hope and great possibility for a newer a new life, new ideas, new thoughts, new perspective. And I think that's very exciting. I, I think so also, and I completely agree, because, I mean, I, I've put it in, in, in similar terms where I, I, I tell people and I remind them that the, the, our psyche, our, our mind, our beliefs, who we are, and even our physical body to a large extent is far more malleable than we might um, imagine. Right. In that sense, because we do, uh, we do change uh, ourselves frequently in that sense. And I, I, I always caution people, too, about holding on to the idea that, well, this is, you know, for instance, with an illness or difficulty within the body, oh, my whole family um, has a predisposition toward uh, alcoholism or toward diabetes or things of that nature. And, well, it may, but that, again, I think also ties in alignment with what you're talking about, about our stories. Exactly. And that's another way to... <clears throat> Well, I, to abdicate responsibility. Right. To say, oh, my family made me do it. The devil made me do it. You know, right. some force, if only, 
you know, the, I think the core saying there is something to the effect, if only you were different, I'd be fine. Right, right, right. And and that's a it's a it's a very compelling perspective because it lets us off the hook in a sense. It, it you know it, it it seems as though we are helpless spectators or helpless victims in a cruel world out to get us. Right. And the best thing we can do is uh, certainly something that I did for years was uh, curl up with a cold beer or three. And you know, watch sports. <laughs> right, right, right. That was that was my reaction to a cold, cruel world was to see how far away I could get, you know, get away mentally. From it. Right, right. Instead of uh, facing it head on and realizing that a whole lot of uh, what I was experiencing was because of the choices I made about what I make things mean. Right. You know. Absolutely. And on that note, we're going to continue this conversation. I want to throw in the call-in number. We've got some people in the chat room. Uh, if you're in the chat room, you have any questions that you'd like to ask uh, Steve uh, through the chat room, or you can call us directly, feel free to do that in the next half hour. We're going to continue this conversation um, for the next half hour. But that call-in number also, by the way, folks, is 646-200-3966. Again, that number is 646-200-3966. If you've got a question you'd like to ask Steve um, about, uh, please feel free to call in or uh, make a comment in the chat room, and we'll, we'll try to answer that on air. Uh, okay, so back to um, the subject at, <laughs> at hand. So, uh, again, I'm, I, I'm really happy to be, to be talking about this. Because I also, you know, I've often said that in the cases of extreme addiction also, I, you know, I work as a, as a counselor of sorts with people, and one of the patternings that I've always seen is there is almost always some type of abandonment issue that is at the core of some level of extreme um, addiction. And whether that's a physical abandonment, um, an emotional or psychological one, or I sometimes jokingly, uh, I say it as a joke, but the abandonment of reason uh-huh. and functionality in that sense. Uh, for instance, I you know I, I look at my own history, and I have a I have wonderful parents. I was very lucky to be uh, born into a, a good, uh, solid family. But my mother at times had the you know emotional development of a nine-year-older. Uh-huh. So that left some repercussions down the line. And I always, one of the things that I always like to, to and I'll, I'll see how you feel about this as well, too, is I'm a, a very much an advocate for discovering where a wound comes from. But I also am an advocate for once the wound is discovered, then recognizing as an adult, you do, you're not necessarily influenced by that once you're conscious of it and you let it go. In other words, what your mother did to you, you know, 30 years ago, uh, obviously, uh, set something into motion, but if you're still mad or upset or angry or blaming your mother, then you've kind of stepped into a whole other level of victimization, which is really consciously created in, in the present. That's, so, <clears throat> oh. Yeah, that's very true, Jim. And and what I, what I try to do with Drunk with Wonder is because this is a very precise area, very sp- specific point that. Uh, I, I can't emphasize strongly enough, and that and that is when we're little kids and something happens, some kind of trauma is uh, experienced. Right. That trauma, that it, my my, re- my research shows that that trauma is locked into the cellular memory of our bodies, not right. just our brains, but our bodies themselves, mm-hmm. with adrenaline. Right. And we, you know, 30 years later, we can look at that story and go, oh, wow, I'm really tied up with this story and I keep making my life be, you know, my mother's fault or whatever it might be. Oh, I'm going to stop doing that. And that's a great, a, a, a great part of the process and an incredibly important part of the process. But if we do not find some way, find some tools to be able to in a safe and responsible way, unlock that cellular memory and and flush it out and, and just put unconditional love in its place and, right. and compassion and, and, and mercy and forgiveness, uh, we're going to keep revisiting that place because we can say mentally, 
oh yeah, I'm done with that. But if if our bodies aren't on board, if we haven't enrolled every cell of our body, right. our bodies are going to just keep running that program. Because remember, you say you talk about abandoning reason. When we're five years old, we are not particularly reasoning beings. Right. I mean, the, the abstract reasoning does not really kick in until we're until adolescence, if we're lucky. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't think mine kicked in until I was probably close to fifty. But right, you know. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's even possible, really, even before the age of seven. Like the whole cognitive thought thing isn't even possible. And I think you're right that often it is actually even much later. And that's so, and that's, and that's, you know, people say, oh, I abandoned, re-, you know, it, it's another way of making ourselves wrong. When a more compassionate heart would look and go, hey, you just, you know, you did the best you could with what you had and what you understood when you were a little kid. Right. You know, and and to and you know when you say your mom was, you know, sometimes it felt like she was stuck at nine years old. I have the not the slightest doubt that there was a series of traumas that she experienced that got her stuck at that place. Right. At that point, right. And and so <clears throat> many people wind up living out their lives, you know, as though they were mentally still focused in in high school. You know, I. I know some people who lead these amazing uh, workshops and, and do amazing work in the world, and uh, they it was primary middle and high school based program called Challenge Day, and you know, and they started going. They have started going to big corporations, some of the biggest, you know, Fortune 100 companies in the in the world, and presenting versions of these programs. And I was talking to them about it, and they had some trepidation about it before they got started doing it because they thought, how is this going to translate into you know the boardroom or into executive offices or you know management and so on and what they discovered is that for all practical purposes uh these corporations were operating at the level of high school consciousness or maybe right. if they were really enlightened at college age consciousness mm-hmm. but that of so many of the same kinds of behaviors and cliques and uh People being scared and gossip and you know juvenile politics and so on was still running the place. The people got up to that place and just got stuck there. Right. Again, because we don't have you know our culture does not teach these tools. It it kind of teaches anti tools. You know, it's like you should be afraid. You should be very afraid. And unless you buy our car or our perfume or our clothes or you know, fill in the blank. Um, you're basically a worthless piece of trash, right. and you and you should feel terrible, <laughs> which is an awful thing to do to people. But you know, it, it one of the most amazing things I've seen in my lifetime is when collectively this country and many people in the world last fall said, "Oh, you know what? I don't need to spend as much money as I was spending." Right. And the economy basically collapses. I mean, we're we're running around. You know, they keep talking about the the engine of consumption is the engine that drives our economy, as though that was somehow a God given good thing, right, right? As opposed to you know driving people more and more deeply in debt, uh, convincing them to buy things they didn't need because they didn't have any self worth. Right, right. I mean, it's a it's an amazing dance, really. It, and I and I, I love that you brought that up. I've, I've been writing about that in my uh, in my in my monthly column for the past couple months. In fact, I finally got off the subject because I I just needed to move on to some other things. But I've been writing about the issues with the economy and and that sense as well too as a, as a mass belief. Oh yes, as well too that people are, are are buying into in that sense or or not buying into, <laughs> as the case may be. Um, but it's a fear of consciousness. Um, that is, is is propelling this along, you know, fed by the media and and you know and again this this prevalent fear consciousness that has entered into uh, you know that has entered into the picture. But I, I have a I have another theory that I, that I've, I've jokingly mentioned as well too that I think that um, you know how each decade sort of gets labeled as so, the so and so decade. You know what I mean? Sure. 70s was the me decade. You know. And everything has its label, and I, I think the 2000s through 2010 will be inevitably labeled as a stupidity decade to some extent, because in many ways we regressed back. But I'm optimistic in that I think sometimes you almost have to, for a lot of people, you have to sort of step back in order to move forward. Um, 
some of the, 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 the bad behavior and the things that are, are negative um, become so almost cartoonish in that sense that that is the way it awakens people's consciousness. Yeah, there's yeah, if that's what it takes, I guess. Yeah, I mean, so, uh, you know, I, I think that um, you know, I, I think even you know, even bringing this back around to the addiction element, you know, one of the I always remember a very defining moment that occurred when I really recognized I had a gambling addiction when I did about eleven years ago was being at a casino at four o'clock in the morning and it being smoky and me being wired on coffee and looking around and feeling a sense of nausea about the experience itself. I, I literally became grossed out almost to a point of absolute disgust in the experience itself. And I, I briefly went through something similar when I was about 22. I, I had a cocaine addiction uh-huh. for maybe about six months when I was about 22. And what, how I broke that, I only had, again, about a six-month addiction. I don't consider that that odd for a 22-year-older um, anyway, in that sense, but it, it was something that I, I went through, and I went through that similar level of, of almost disgust about what it was that I was doing, where I was, I, and, and what had occurred to me during that process with the cocaine thing. I actually wrote about this in, 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 my, in my book, uh, Dirty Little Secrets, that I wrote a couple of years back, was I recognized what I really was addicted to was the popularity. I wanted uh-huh with the pretty people. I wanted to be popular. I wanted to be all of these things that uh, would make me feel good about myself, except the recognition came at one point that I was uh, spending a lot of money. Um, I was I was such a health nut that to be putting something like that in my body also didn't make sense. And then it actually was something deeper than that. It was really a recognition that the people I was connected with I didn't like. Ah. They were not my people. It, it, it was something I had placed myself into in that sense in order to feel good about myself, and I, I felt, felt a sense of disgust. I won't even say it was self-loathing because it wasn't even that. It was just a recognition of, of, of being done with something, that it was just not for me anymore. And, and, and people have found this strange, but I, I said I had never did it again after that, and I really have not, and it had never interested me again. Well, I yeah, I, I you know, I've uh, I've thought about writing a book titled All My Addictions. Right. And because uh, uh, I've been addicted to a number of things including uh, t- tobacco smoking and right. I was shooting drugs when I was 17 and I uh, really addicted to methadrine speed for about a year mm-hmm. and uh you know, I've just been through the cycle enough times and that's part of why uh I wrote Drunk with Wonder was because I eventually began to feel as though I was playing a whack-a-mole you know that I would I would get rid of one addiction and then another would pop up. Right. right. And I'd get rid of that one and then another would pop up. And I, I just finally got kind of exhausted. And uh, I realized that, you know, for example, hanging out with cool people or who I self-selected as cool people, like you were doing when you were doing coke, um, you know, there's an adrenaline rush associated with that. Right. And I that that to me was one of the Ahas was the the commonality in all of the different addictions, whether they're whether it's sex or work or television or some physical substance like alcohol or cocaine or tobacco. It's all comes down to an adrenaline rush at one level or another, and that, as I said earlier in the program, what I believe we're really going after when we're feeding that adrenaline rush. If we if we knew how to, what we'd really be doing would be deepening deepening our connection with Source, with Spirit, right. with our own hearts, with unconditional love and joy and ecstasy that can be had. And I'm here to tell you, all of this joy and happiness and ecstasy, it, it's our birthright. It's our birthright. Every single one of us can have these experiences without any substances without any addictions right you know so I, I i find it fascinating how many people i've talked to where that's never even occurred to them as a possibility yeah well and i i think uh, uh, there are a lot of influences that, that get people to 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 not think that way in that sense um you know often um there are distortions in religion Another other oh, yeah. that people are taught 
that um, that that condition us. Like I mean, like I always I, again not to blame Catholicism <laughs> because it's not, it, again that's a blame game. But when I when I look at my own history, for for me having been grown up raised Catholic, one of the things that I was aware of at a young age about Catholicism, which was sort of the idea that there was a perception that if you suffered, God loved you more. Right. We were taught this very early on. Uh, I, I remember reading books about saints, and you know, the book would say that Saint uh, Augustine had her eyes plucked out, and and all these other horrific things happened to her, and God loved her. And I remember even as a child thinking to myself, you know, um, God's kind of a prick. <laughs> you know, if that you know what I mean, if that's the case, I mean, is that what it takes to be to be loved in that sense? Because I, I always had found myself being drawn to the idea of simply having fun uh-huh. and being happy. Like, I mean, that, w- that was something that was natural to me. And I w- my, my joke is I would say that that was trained out of me. <laughs> and right. I rediscovered it again when I became an adult and started to say, no, I'm not doing it that way anymore. I want to go back to myself who enjoys life and who is fun and, and who understands the idea of, very simply put, all things in moderation. You know? Oh, right. Right. What a concept. Exactly. Yeah. You know, have a piece of cheesecake once in a while. <laughs> you know what I mean? But don't eat a, don't eat a cheesecake at night. You right. know what I mean? Or, you know, okay. there's a certain element of this that, that I, again, to me, I think that, that's so obvious when it's said, but, but really isn't when we, we look at that programming that we get um, and then, uh, you know, and that we, we just are, are not conscious of. And, I, again, I really like that you bring up that idea that you, you're absolutely right. I think everything really is is a process of getting us back to being in touch with source. Absolutely, and I, you know, my wife is a recovering Catholic, and uh, right, right. Uh, we've talked about this whole thing at at great length, and this this not just Catholic, but I think uh, certainly Christianity in general yeah. has a central thesis that that everyone is born screwed. Right. Everyone is born as trash. As as a sinner, and and there's nothing we can do about it, except go to an intercessory, right? Someone outside of ourselves to make us whole. That we are incapable of being whole and complete within ourselves. And I think that's a fundamental difference with the uh, the spirituality that I experience in my life. That. My my teaching and, and that of many other people in the in New Thought, for example, is that we are whole and complete. That we come in our very birthright is is unconditional love and happiness and joy, and it does get trained out of us, and we do get lost in fear-based consciousness, right. and it turns out that that's really a handy, easy way for people who know how to do this, who know how to play this game, to control the population. I mean, we, look, we have looked at this, you know, over an eight-year period where fear was used cynically and extensively to control the population, to manipulate it so that the people in power could do what they wanted to do. Right, absolutely. And as long as we abdicate our power, and give it up to the advertising agencies and to our politicians and to the religious institutions, oh, we can continue to expect to be fed a fear-based consciousness that is designed to keep us feeling separate and alone and scared and not empowered and willing to stand up for peace and social justice. Right. And, that, and I, I think it's changing. I, 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 I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, and uh, I do see many signs of positive change in the world. As do I. And I, I always, I always, I, 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 I absolutely agree with you in that sense. And I always say that I think that you know there were so many predictions about you know this this shift in in the world at this time, and of course it always ends up tying with end of the world predictions and various other things too, which to me is sort of the you know, I, I go with the same perspective that if we destroyed this world, we'd have to uh, create another one to live out and have the experiences somewhere else anyway. In right. that sense, in other words, you know, you're not getting out of the game until you've evolved, or you know, and 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 are finished with the game. In that sense, so all that to me is irrelevant because I think it's escapism. But I do think that there's an element of truth in the in the change in consciousness that's going on in the world. You know, I'm 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 an astrologer. 
So I see it as a shift between even, you know, the Piscean Age toward the Aquarian Age. You know, you can uh-huh. look at it from multiple angles in that sense, but the, the turbulence that, that is going on is also cathartic to me in that sense. It is, it is, it's, it's creating a new way of thinking, uh, new perspectives, and a, and a shift in consciousness. And I think things are improving, even though sometimes that's hard to see. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, are you familiar with Barbara Marks Hubbard? Uh, no, her work, I'm not her, her work at all. Um, she's a futurist and um, had, had quite a mark uh, in the world. And um, she's talked about how the, the the world is is awakening into a co-creative way. And I mean, many people have talked about this, including the idea of the internet itself as a way that the planetary mind, of which every person is one cell is wiring itself up. And, you know, we just had this experience of uh, Iran, for example, and the elections and the young people uh, finding ways to text and use Twitter and so on to continue to communicate with the wider world. And I just saw another story about, um, you know, young people, university students in, in, uh, in the West Bank, Palestinian kids, who their biggest dream is to become citizens of the world. Right. To just be accepted like any other country, like any other people, as people with dreams who want peace for themselves and to start families. And that's what, you know, that's what people want in Iran. That's what people want all over the world. Right. And we get these leaders in these places of power where what they want is to hold on to their power. And uh, and for us as a collective, as a planetary community, to rise up in consciousness, in peaceful but determined, fierce consciousness, like uh, right. like uh, uh, Ram Dass talks about, fierce grace, is to to stand resolutely in the fire and say, "I'm choosing love. I, I don't care. I don't, you know, my, I may die. Oh, well, I'm choosing love." I'm choosing peace. I'm choosing care. I'm choosing generosity. I'm choosing loving kindness. And when we are able to make those choices over and over again, we are making those choices available on a wider scale for everyone on the planet. Right. Absolutely. Right. Right. You're you're carving out pathways. Yeah, we're you know we're what I, I think a lot of people don't realize yet is that in every moment we can make a new choice you know it feels like this incredible inertia oh i mean how many times have you heard somebody say oh it's always been this way oh it's human nature right you know and actually no it isn't (laughs) it's human training it's human uh it's 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 what we've known and without uh you know confronting our stories and really looking into them, we don't know what's what's really so and what's just a story. I mean, you know, right. how many thousands of years did we live on a planet where, you know, people thought that it was flat? Right. You know, and there's still people who think it's flat. There's still people who think we we staged going to the moon. There's people who are absolutely insistent that, you know, on all kinds of amazing things, like that the world's only 6,000 years old you know, and that evolution isn't real. I mean, despite the insanely overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Uh, and so w- those of us who are awakening, waken, awakening uh, need to just hold on and refuse to uh, dive back down into the fear. Yeah, and, and that's a beautiful thing. I mean, even, you know, I, I, I mentioned this in, in, my, in my column for next month that I'm writing too about we see this uh, uh, um, this issue with these town hall meetings all over television. Woo! And, you know, it's very interesting to me because at one level I think it's a beautiful thing because people are getting together and they're dialoguing and they're talking. But, of course, you have, you know, lunatics and, and people that are tremendously fearful screaming in fear over the changes. It's amazing. Being, yeah, it's absolutely it's amazing. I, you know, it was a, it's very interesting to watch in that sense. Oh, it is. It's uh, it's you know we've uh, the we're really at a at a choice point at a nexus point uh, in our you know in our 
country's culture and future as the this tremendous anguished fear and I have a lot of compassion for people who are just so terrified of change uh, to to find some way as a community as a larger community to hold these people in a loving embrace right. and just just to hold them and go you know just breathe it's going to be okay you know nobody's out to get you nobody wants to take away anything from you right you know you're safe you don't have to come armed everywhere the world yeah. is not an evil place you just you know you just what is that um when you're a hammer everything looks like a nail right right you yeah, know when you're uh, you know when you think that you have to be armed what have they done in tennessee they've made gun it's okay to bring a concealed gun into a bar now who do you know that thinks that's a good idea Right, right. Guns, loaded guns, and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, that, and where's the? And, and look at the level of fear. Is, is what I come back to and an attempt to get some perspective and a sense of compassion. Yeah, and, just you know, to make I, them wrong and laugh at them is 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 not going to help. You know, we just create right. more separation, absolutely, uh, and distance instead right. of uh, a helpful, healthy dialogue about right. you know we're all in this together how do we move this country forward in a way that feels like we're being generous right. you know kind loving human beings instead of just so scared and i got mine and everybody get away right yeah i, I completely agree and i i think you know we can joke about some of these theatrics but these are real feelings and real fears and things that that people are experiencing, so you know you also have that, that duality of, of compassion at the same time, right? Sense. But I again, my perspective is because the changes are inevitable, they cannot really be stopped in that sense. So the fear becomes stronger um, among uh, many people who are you know are, are terrified of, of these changes that are happening in the world, and that they're, they're going to happen. You know, we're, we're we're moving toward a different type of, of perception. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I I want to plug a, a book that I just finished. Yeah, I, I want to. I want to actually to take. I want you to more than plug. I want. We've got two more minutes. I want you to plug uh, any book you want to mention. I want you to plug you. I want. This is shameless promotion time. <laughs> so go with it. Okay, here we go. Right. Shameless promotion. I want to promote uh, real quick. Neil Donald Walsh's The Conversations with God author. Right. <clears throat> His new book is When Everything Changes, Change Everything, and I found it a very provocative and fascinating book. I highly recommend it for book groups and uh, study groups, spiritual groups. He says that all change is for the better. Right. And I just want to, all change is for the better. I find that a very provocative, juicy statement. I want people to think about it. And of course, my book, Drunk with Wonder, Awakening to the God Within, uh, highly recommend that people buy it. <laughs> I think it's a great read. I think it really helps people. Uh, I have drunkwithwonder.com. Just spell out drunkwithwonder.com. You can buy it there. You can buy it on Amazon. I have a great audio version of the book, Unabridged, on iTunes or audible.com. And, of course, I'm available for private uh, counseling as well. Excellent. Excellent. And you can reach me, you know, Steve at drunkwithwonder.com is a real easy way to reach me. Excellent. I'm, I'm I'm glad to hear that. You know, I really, you know, let me mention to listeners, we've actually had a number of people in and out of the chat room during the conversation. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the things is, uh, I mentioned this to you also, Steve, that this, uh, the podcast goes to iTunes and get, goes on the, so people can access it at any point. Excellent. So if you started listening to the show later, uh, folks, you know, you can go back and listen to it right from the beginning. Um, and, and uh, you know, catch uh, this conversation with Steve. Um, I, I definitely want to thank you for being here, Steve. I think uh, I, I'm, I'm definitely in agreement with you. I think your, your book sounds excellent. I'm probably going to check this out myself um, uh, because I think it, it is a really powerful subject, and I, I like the way that you're approaching it. Um, thank you. And I, I commend you for, you know, for being willing to share it. I appreciate it very much. I appreciate the opportunity to be on your show, Jim. And I thank you. I just want to, you know, give you props for doing what you're doing in the world, man. 
Yeah, I love it. You know, again, it's doing what I do because I, I love doing it uh, in that sense. So I, I can still gamble once in a blue moon, <laughs> but, but I need to do my real work in that sense. That's not work. That's just distraction, temporary distraction for a little bit. So anyway, thanks again, Steve. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We'll catch up with you in a couple of weeks on the next show, and uh, have a great day. Peace. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. All right, great. So we're we're off. Steve, you still there? Okay. Uh anyway, so uh great show. We'll uh we'll catch everyone later. Peace.